I think you have to be really proactive about it, really aware of what regulations apply to you and, um, and, and monitoring, actively monitoring whether you're in compliance with those statutes and regulations. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Okay, looks like we're live. Okay, so welcome to another live recording of the Nursing Home Podcast, the podcast that was created to answer the questions that we're embarrassed to ask or don't know where to find the answers to. Uh, I was definitely that person who didn't know the answer to a lot of these questions, and I'm very happy to be able to provide this forum um, in order to really directly answer some of these questions. So in today's podcast, uh, we're going to meet uh, Jana Volante walshack um, Jana is a partner in the law firm of Fox Rothschild in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jana works primarily in the areas of regulatory compliance, white-collar criminal defense, commercial lit- litigation, and works with many healthcare clients. So Jana, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for taking some time uh, to be here with us. And I'm going to jump, actually, before we jump right into it, if you don't mind, just take, you know, maybe 30 seconds or a minute, and just let our listeners just get to know you a little bit better about, you know, how you got to doing what you're doing right now. And then we'll jump into uh, the content of the show. Absolutely. Um, so I, I started um, my career in law about 11 years ago, and um, I started as a litigator Uh, handling commercial lawsuits and also white-collar criminal defense. So um, federal grand jury subpoenas, um, actions for fraud, things like that. And over the years, I began to represent more and more healthcare clients. And eventually, I also began to serve as the outside general counsel for a large healthcare client. And I think that sort of uh, brings us up to date. I'm planning on talking about uh, the False Claims Act, and I've certainly handled a number of those types of cases over the years. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I think just to get us started, just to paint the background here, and just, you know, thank you to those who are watching live. I see on LinkedIn. Uh, it's definitely appreciated. I think that yeah. sort of uh, brings us. Oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> Uh, there we have it. So questions like this. So many, there are many people who enter the healthcare space, specifically nursing homes, and their goal is they want to provide outstanding care to their residents. They want to provide a place where their staff can make an honorable living, doing something, making a difference. And they want to make sure that they can do all of this at a profit for those that are the nonprofit facilities, uh, the for-profit facilities. And at the same time, they want to make sure that they do not run into uh, the legal challenges and that, you know, we sometimes see in the news. 
Um, they want to stay out of court. And like we said before, they certainly want to stay out of jail. But they know that these are serious. Um, it's a complex little microcosm of society in, in these types of inpatient healthcare communities, whether it's a nursing home or a hospital. But And so I guess the question would be, you know, what are some of the most common pitfalls that maybe you've seen or heard about, worked with, that we can avoid? And then I also want to get to when it does happen. You know, sometimes just knowing worst case scenario helps you better prepare for it. So like, what, what is a worst case scenario and how do you deal with that? But let's start with the first thing. You know, what are some things uh, to avoid um, in regards to the False Claims Act? Um, well, I I um, I like to maybe discuss things to do, you know, affirmative things that you can do, proactive things that you can do to try to avoid it, um, you know, rather than kind of posing it as a pitfall. Okay. I, I think, you know, the, the most important thing is to comply with applicable federal and state regulations. Um, so I think, you know, the, the type of operators and administrators you were talking about who, um, you know, want to provide good quality patient care, um, want to, you know, help their residents, help the community, of course, have every intention, I think, of following federal and state regulations. But um, I think you have to be really proactive about it, really aware of what regulations apply to you and, um, and, and monitoring, actively monitoring whether you're in compliance with those statutes and regulations. Uh, one way to do that is we rep recommend um, comprehensive corporate compliance programs and policies that will implement those programs. So having someone knowledgeable, usually a lawyer, draw up a program for you that includes sort of all of the, the regulations you need to follow and what you need to do to follow them. I think, you know, having a comprehensive document like that is really helpful. And then having policies that you can give to your staff that they can follow so that everyone's in compliance with the corporate compliance program. Um, one thing about a corporate compliance program, if you would end up in court, in particular, if you would end up um, you know, being sued under the False Claims Act or, um, or um, indicted criminally or under criminal investigation, having a corporate compliance program is really helpful, but it's only helpful if you follow it. Um, it's really bad to have a program like this and to not follow it because that sort of has the opposite effect. It, it shows that you know what you should be doing and you're not doing it. So hold on, before we go further, um, let's just back up. What is the False Claims Act? So the False Claims Act um, has a long history. It was actually enacted under President Lincoln back during the Civil War. And the idea was um, to address fraud that was being perpetrated against the government. And to sort of free up government resources, they let private individuals bring those suits. And under the False Claims Act, those private individuals are called relators. Um, so a relator... I just understand, can, and to simplify it, that means snitchers. <laughs> well, right? It, Pretty much. Can. I, I mean, a relator um, has to be someone who 
is an original source. So um, okay. they have to show that they have some sort of inside information, um, which a whistleblower. You know, exactly a whistleblower. Um, mm -hmm. And that is kind of one basis, you know, if you're sued under the False Claims Act to try to get the suit thrown out is by showing that the person who brought it, the relator, is not actually an original source of the information. Uh, but very often these people are um, disgruntled employees or former employees. Um, they could be maybe the family members of a patient in your facility. Um, so they're the ones who initiate the claim. Uh, but it's actually a claim being brought on behalf of the federal government. Okay. Now, just, let's just focus on this for a minute. So the False Claims Act is protecting government resources from being used and spent, um, I guess, in ways that don't, that um, I don't know, in ways that they shouldn't be spent or we're just saying, well, I'm a family member or let's say I'm a disgruntled employee. I get fired for whatever it is, not doing my job. Now I'm upset, so I, I go online and I find out from other disgruntled employees and in the disgruntled employees Facebook group or wherever, wherever it is that they share their information, and I know that I have this massive power to act on behalf of the federal government to go and get my, you know, my previous employers into some serious, serious trouble. So, what, what, what exactly? What type of claim? What am I saying? They build for services that they didn't provide. They build to maybe help us there. That's uh, what what you just said is a very common um, claim under the False Claims Act, that you're billing for services that you didn't provide. Um, there's another sort of more recent theory uh, called the worthless services doctrine, where a relator might claim that the services being provided were so substandard, um, they were so grossly negligent that there were effectively no services being provided. And so that you were billing for worthless services. Okay, so that I can understand. In other words, you have to be somewhat educated in what's false claims and what's not false claims to make such a claim. And I was, so if I'm a CNA and I was there and I saw that maybe I was overwhelmed at the number of residents that I had in my shift or I didn't like the person I was reporting to or I had too many call outs and as a result I was terminated. I don't know a typical, you know, a typical anyone in the building, sometimes even the administrator, unless you're like the MDS coordinator or something like that, you don't know what billing is going on. I mean, you, you can just assume, I guess, that whatever services are being provided are being billed to someone, which is not always the government, right? It could be a private insurance as well. It could be a private pay, and then it wouldn't be relevant. But, right, I think. Is that correct? You're right. You're right. And just like any other type of lawsuit, um, you know, just because the suit is brought doesn't necessarily mean that it's meritorious. Um, so, you know, just because a former employee, for example, um, goes and, and finds a lawyer to help them bring this suit and they initiate this suit under the False Claims Act, which is often called a key TAM, a key TAM action, um, just because they initiate a key TAM action doesn't mean that it's um, meritorious, but you still nonetheless have to defend it. Okay. And, you know, maybe maybe what they're claiming is that paperwork that had to be submitted to the government in order for the facility to be paid, they might be alleging that that paperwork was falsified, for instance. And that could be another basis for a suit under the False Claims Act. So basically, just to bring it down to my language, 
um, it would mean that they're saying, let's say that the MDS coordinator is just putting in random numbers or the, the coding in the nurse's notes, they're putting in what they know or what they were told, let's say by some outside company or or the, the internal experts that this is gonna result in, the, in a higher payout. So therefore make sure to write this in the notes. Um, Exactly. Upcoding is another another commonly used basis for a false claims act suit. Okay, upcoding meaning that they're coding someone as uh, more clinically dependent than they than they really are. What is is that? What it means? That they're um, asking for payment for um, a higher level of service um, than was actually provided. Mm-hmm. So okay. Um, is there any room? So, uh, assuming I'm just jump around here a little bit. If if let, let let's say some of your case you just said, and it was done not maliciously to steal more money from the government, but because somebody thought that that's the right way to document, or because they misinterpreted someone else's documentation and genuinely thought that this um, that this is really the, a reflection of of the facts. Does that have any um, impact in the suit. And just before you respond, the importance of this question is, does every person have to be scared to do what they think is actually correct? Uh, so I think there's a two-part answer there. Um, okay. I mean, for, for a claim um, under the False Claims Act to have merit, there needs to be scienter, which means knowledge. Um, there needs to be knowledge that uh, the claim is false um, or, you know, some sort of reckless disregard for the truth or the falsity of what's submitted to the government. Okay. Um, but, you know, if one thing that I would recommend is, you know, if, if a facility, if an operator catches wind, um, you know, that someone's making such allegations, to immediately investigate, um, you know, to make sure, for instance, that the services that were billed for were actually provided, um, you know, to immediately investigate complaints, whether they're coming from patients, family members of patients, staff. And, um, you know, if you do find that those complaints have merit to correct, you know, any misconduct that happened, and to try to adjust policies to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is that in an in a effort to demonstrate that you're taking it seriously? Uh, Absolutely. Could that yeah, that's be, in, in an effort be... to demonstrate you're taking it seriously. And if you do find that there was a violation of the law, one thing that you can do um, and I, I think it's always wise to consult counsel first. But one thing that you can do is make a voluntary disclosure to the government to say, we investigated this. We found that there was a violation. We fixed it. And to the extent that there's any, um, you know, financial damages as in any overpayment that, you know, maybe the government paid more than they were supposed to to the facility, um, returning that money to the government. Okay, now is there a liability um, by the facility if they're going to start uh, conducting their own internal investigation 
that that's going to be an admission of guilt by the very fact that they start taking it, you know, that level of seriousness. I, I wouldn't be concerned about that. I, I think um, just like having a good corporate compliance program and following it, um, investigating complaints. And then, you know, if you find that those complaints are, are valid, attempting to fix the problem, I think is actually evidence of, of good faith that you're trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So now getting back to my disgruntled employee, um, they may know this and they may even be told by their attorney that their claim is going to go nowhere, but they're going to have to hire the facilities going to have to bring on some, uh, a legal team in order to defend themselves against this claim. And that itself, um, is going to be a significant impact um, on the facility. So I don't want to give anyone any bad ideas here, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if you're an operator, you want to make sure uh, this is this is not legal advice. This is just, you know, operator to operator, I guess, that you want to make sure that if there are these issues that you get to them, you know, before they have a chance. You know, just like with the Department of Public Health, if you have a, a family member that's upset, about anything before they start going to the Department of Public Health and just saying all the buzzwords that will they know will get the Department of Public Health in the building and have them sniffing. If you reach out to them first and have a conversation with them and get to the root of why they're upset, which has nothing to do with whatever they're alleging is going on in the facility, you know, many times you'll save yourself. It, you know, it could be months of work. It could be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or more um, by doing that. So, I mean, that's just from an employee management standpoint but let, let's let's go to the next step let's say you have someone in a facility they're falsifying documentation um they're not sitting there you know with uh in a black coat and sunglasses in a dark corner of the facility they may be sitting in a regular office filling out their mds's or maybe an owner or an operator administrator telling cnas how to document or anything like that and let's assume that it's true and it goes to court um, and of course, a good legal team will try to, you know, to work on the case for them. I just want to get to worst case scenario. What happens? Well, I, there's, I guess, a, a whole process, um, you know, with regard to the False Claims Act. Um, and we can certainly get to worst case scenario. I will say, you know, if you have that person uh, kind of locked in their office doing things that they shouldn't be doing, um, you know, it, it's again helpful to be able to show that they're acting against policy and that they should have known, um, you know, based on training, for instance, that what they were doing was against policy and that you as a facility weren't in any way condoning this, um, you know, condoning what they were doing. But, you know, worst case scenario, um, you know, maybe you don't find out on your own that this is happening. Um then the way you, you might find out is through a civil investigative demand, which is the civil equivalent of a subpoena. It's a document that you get from the government ordering you to produce certain documents. Um, and, and sometimes it could also um, you know, ask for um, an interview of an employee, for instance. Um, when you receive that civil investigative demand, I think it's important to to hire experienced counsel who can help you respond to it, but who can also reach out to the government and find out 
what's going on. Um, you know, what are they investigating? Um, and and hopefully they can help you then strategize so you don't get to worst case scenario. Okay. I mean, so, hope, oh, go ahead. No, so just getting back to what you said in the beginning. So by having that compliance program, having that corporate compliance program, um, you know, working the way, uh, you know, the, the way that it's being set up properly, um, that will affect, um, like, you, like you said, that it, it can, the lone wolf, so to speak, that, you know, you have this person, let's assume um, that, that this person is, um, is acting alone and this person does, and not just acting alone, but they're doing what they're supposed, what they're not supposed to be doing. By you showing, here's the sign-in sheets that, you know, he or she was educated on our corporate compliance policy. And here's the policy. Here's where in the policy it says that what she's doing does not comply with the policy. Um, at least that much, um, you'd be in a much better place. Right now, I'm just connecting the dots. I'll tell you why, because if I could just say things the way they are, many times people feel like the corporate compliance uh, program or any of these types of programs that are pretty in binders, um, you know, is that they're that they're, they're not connected to reality and what's the purpose and how many people in the facility actually read through the entire binder and how how connected, and it's not just uh, corporate compliance. You can say the same thing about clinical operations and, and uh, you know, if there's if there's a fire in the building, are we going to start pulling out the binder? No. So there's supposed to be training. There's supposed to be all these different things. And, you know, it is definitely a place uh, to reference information. Um, right. I, I think it's a great first step to have your staff, you know, sign off that they've read this. But I think it's certainly not enough. Um, I think, you know, the training um, is is really, really important. And, and policies that kind of take what's in the corporate compliance program and, and make it practical, um, make it something that, you know, the staff can follow in their day-to-day -day duties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, so j just jumping back to where we were. So someone gets this false claims act, we find that someone is doing it maliciously. So having, at least from our initial um, internal investigation, um, so bringing in a legal team that has the ability to A, respond, and, and B, may have uh, the right connections um, to be able to find out, like, what, what is it that we're really looking at beyond just the document that we've received? Um, obviously, that can be uh, extremely helpful. Uh, what, what would be a next step then? Just, like, walk us through the process. I think the next step is um, if you know, an internal investigation hasn't been done already to sort of get to the bottom internally of what's going on. Um, you know, council may want to assist with that. Um, but I, next step is, you know, con contacting the government. Um, and the government has a choice to intervene in a false claims act suit. So it's started by a private party, but the government can sort of take over the suit. And so I think your council will want to convince the government not to intervene if possible, um, perhaps file a motion to dismiss so that the case is hopefully over. Um, or, you know, if, if something did happen um, that makes this a meritorious claim, you may want to consider some sort of settlement with the government and, and council can, you know, assist in negotiating that sort of settlement. 
rather than going to trial. Um, I mean, under the False Claims Act, there um, you can be liable for trouble damages. So if the government calculates the damages to be $1 million, you could be responsible for $3 million in damages. Plus, um, there's a fine between $11,665 per claim and $23,330 per claim. Um, so a settlement can you know, help bring those numbers down so that hopefully you're not paying trouble damages um, and, and hopefully paying a lesser amount in civil fines. Now, this is on top of returning the funds that were obtained? In other words... Yes. It, okay. yes. So it... it um, one thing that can be addressed in settlement negotiations with the government is how any funds that are, are returned are addressed. If the funds are returned before um, you have any idea that a false claims act suit has been brought, there's a better chance that those funds will be subtracted from anything you might need to pay later. Got it. Got it. Uh-huh. Um, Okay, so now um, if the government, uh, continuing on the worst case scenario here, the government decides that they do want, they are interested in this case, and they smell something brewing, and they don't want this to be settled out of court. Um, so then such a thing would go to trial, right? Is that the next step? And then yes. it would be government versus, is this, I guess it would depend if it's Medicaid or Medicare, if it's state or federal, or how, how does that work? Well, um, I, the federal government can, um, can have a false claims act suit, you know, under Medicare or Medicaid, uh, but there are also state law equivalents of the false claims act. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. for instance, like New York state has a, a New York false claims act, um, you know, and, and lawsuits can also be brought under those state law equivalents. Got it. Um, Okay, so what about from a criminal standpoint? Um, and not and not talking, let's say from the ownership, uh, operators, administrator level, in other words, the management of the nursing home that is not actually doing the work, but is overseeing the work that is done and that results in the, in the questionable documentation or behavior. What level of personal liability? Are there nursing home owners sitting in jail today for something that their employees have done because maybe their corporate compliance program wasn't where it should have been, or maybe they didn't screen the employee properly or whatever? Um, yeah, tell us about that. There's something called the corporate officer uh, doctrine, where responsible corporate officer doctrine, where, um, you know, if, if you're sort of the one ultimately responsible for overseeing and monitoring um, the operations, you can be liable for, you know, the conduct of employees. So it is very important from both a civil perspective and a criminal perspective to um, just monitor things to the best of your ability and, and to really oversee your employees. In order for, um, let's say, a, a management, a corporate officer if that's if, if that's the right term in order for them to be criminally responsible though do you need like a case of gross negligence well my question is people who are right now in that role 
all right, whether it's administrator or, or regional owner, manager, whatever the title is, and whatever their relationship is with the building, they, there's a certain level of management in the building, a certain level of management, you know, that's depending on how it's set up, you know, corporate and a corporate structure, how I'm trying to figure out how much they have to stay up at night worrying that someone that they hired and screened and did what they, what you know, and is doing their job, maybe on their dime doing things that shouldn't be done. And besides for a business concern, because they could be, like you mentioned before, serious financial impl implications, but also from a criminal standpoint, um, w w I guess the question is, how do, how do they avoid that? Well, from a criminal standpoint, you know, there's a kind of a higher level of knowledge required. Okay. Um, so I think um, you want to be monitoring the things that you're expected to monitor, I guess, um, not just blindly trusting employees to do things that you really should be aware of, um, but something that would typically be handled by an employee that um, that it would be sort of onerous for an owner to, you know, be in the weeds about, um, I, I would think you wouldn't be expected to know of that necessarily. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. This is definitely very helpful of getting a better idea of the false claims act specifically, and also the levels, um, the, the, the levels of the legalities that any, any healthcare facility is responsible for. Um, I just see the time here and, and, you know, it's almost time to wrap up any final, um, other issues that you feel that we, we should touch on before we wrap up today or any final thoughts about, um, the false claims act or a practical piece of advice for operators, you know, just before we wrap things up. I think we've covered a lot of the, the best advice, but I would say, um, you know, good training for your employees keep good records of, you know, what's being done and, and encourage your employees to keep those records in real time and um, discipline employees um, if you find out that they are responsible for any misconduct. Got it. Got it. Um, so I guess uh, just before we go, um, uh, first of all, thank you for your time and your expertise and sharing, you know, in this forum. I, I know this is a subject which is a little bit taboo, uh, if, and people don't really discuss it, not on the nursing home side. And also, um, it's sometimes difficult to get, um, you know, someone from a, from the legal team to talk about it also, unless you're actively involved in this stuff. But these are the things that a lot of people are nervous about. And honestly, it pushes good people away from these types of businesses, because why should I deal with a healthcare business which has, um, you know, government funding and additional um, potential liability where I can, you know, do some other business. So just knowing, you know, the devil that you know and the devil that you don't know, right? So just knowing what it is, I think, you know, kind of, you know, dusts it off a little bit and makes it a little bit more approachable. So I really appreciate you for doing that. So thank you so much for joining this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast. Um, we'll definitely leave a link in, you know, in the, in the podcast, in the show notes, um, to fax Rothschild, obviously. And if you don't, maybe just before you go, tell us a little bit about some of the work, sorry, some of the work that you've actually done, um, the services, just a little bit of, you know, the fax Roth, Rothschild does with nursing homes. Um, maybe just give us like a 30 second blurb of what you actually do so that if people are interested, 
uh, or have such a you know allegation against their facility that they'll be able to to at least have an initial conversation and see you know if there's something that makes sense. Absolutely. So Fox Rothschild has offices all over the country, and we have lawyers who practice in a, a wide variety of areas. So in terms of the services we can provide to nursing homes, um, we can provide all, all sorts of services, um, uh, corporate employment, real estate, and, and what we were just discussing, um, you know, compliance services um, or, or services if you are involved in in litigation or receive a, a subpoena or a civil investigative demand. Got it. Got it. Okay. And uh, the best place to learn more information is, I guess, on the, on the website, which is what? It's foxrothschild.com. Okay. Simple as that. All right. We'll definitely include that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again um, and sharing all of that information you know, with first of all with me, but also with the listeners and viewers who have already um, joined the conversation and also those who are going to see it at the nursinghomepodcast.com. And as a reminder, um, this episode, as well as all past and future episodes, are available at the nursinghomepodcast.com as well as wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you for joining us today for this program. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know What an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.